0: Again.
1: I, mean, I only have one thing that like. so, I likes Yeah, I like some mankind live together. Black, white, shiny, anyone. You know what I mean? That's all. <laughs> One the thing about music, when it is hits you, be okay the thing about music, when it hits you, feel okay me with music, yeah me with music, man. This is Chantala, don't no, watch that Chantala, this you the what you the i the never the 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 seems that grab oh why you do down answer? Oh no, come on, you better stop. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop the stop it, 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 stop now Now, 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 now Now, now, stop it, stop it, stop now I not music. <laughs> we not the tea on, tea on, tea on, tea with music, with, music now. Tea tea with music. The I, I say, don't watch them. If You want me to show a speech. Stretch you am. Can't take it. Can't take it. i revolution. Where is it?
0: Welcome, everybody, to Curiouser and Curiouser. Today, we are going to talk about the mystic, the messenger, the prophet, Bob Marley. Um, I played a few quotes, which might have been a little difficult to hear because of the recording quality, but the first quote was where he basically talks about having only one ambition, and he says, white, black, Chinese, I just want them to all come together with love. And then I played a little bit of Trenchtown Rock, which is one of the classic sort of Bob Marley songs about Trenchtown. And then I played a quote about money, uh, where he's being interviewed and asked, how much money do you have? And uh, are you rich? And he basically says that money isn't what makes somebody rich. Um, and then, of course, I'm playing uh, right now um, the super beloved Could You Be Loved song. So um, we're going to dig into everything about Bob Marley. It's not going to be sequential. We're going to be talking about all parts of his life. uh, And wherever this conversation takes us, it's going to take us. Um, But I want to first welcome Olivia to this show. Hello.
2: Hello, hello. Thanks for having me today. Of
0: course. I'm so happy that you're here. Um, and I'm you and Curious and Curious is a variety show where we dig into all the things. That's how simply I can put it. So you will see that we have a variety of different topics, interviews. They range from history to science to art to business. We'll do panels, interviews with people, um, but you will be learning something fresh and new every week uh, and hopefully uh, learning something or contributing to the conversation. So, um, you know, I chose... Wanting to dive into Bob Marley, Olivia, because he is so universal. Mm. Um, Many of the artists that we've been looking at have kind of this very broad appeal. And Bob Marley is sort of unique in this group because, um, you know, he's called these things. He's called mystic, messenger, seer, visionary, prophet. And there's a reason that he's called that so much of um, what he's expressed either through his music Um, or during interviews, um, is so, um, it's really profound. It's on the level of a Shakespeare. Mm. Um, And I know because I love Shakespeare and, uh, you know, love the plays and have read all of them. uh, And for fun, I actually take Shakespeare classes. So um, it's not a small thing uh, to say that he, some of the wisdom that comes out of this man's mouth Uh, It reminds me very much of Shakespeare. I just want to read you a few quotes to get us started off. This is a great one. And I know that I have used it before. And it's great for women in relationships. Um, And it's a famous one. You'll see it sort of all over the internet or pop up on, you know, Instagrams all the time. If she's amazing, she won't be easy. If she's worth it, you won't give up. If you give up, you're not worth it. The truth is everyone is going to hurt you. You just need to find the ones that are worth suffering for. And another one, some people feel the rain, others get wet. Hmm. The day you stop racing is the day you win the race. Free speech carries with it some freedom to listen. The biggest coward is a man who awakens the love of a woman with no intention of loving her. When one door is closed, you don't know how many more are open. Um, these sound a little, you know, I think they could sound a little trite without context. Mm. Um, but the thing is that all of these quotes come from his heart. Um, and this is a man that dropped out of school at 16. So it's not like, you know, he went to Northwestern and learned this stuff and then repackaged it or he was a rock star touring the world and picked up this wisdom from his various gurus or, you know, Reiki Matt. This is something that came to him from his heart uh, and it came to him through his, you know, his raw intellect and the experiences uh, that he had growing up, uh, you know, half black, half white in Jamaica at a time when Jamaica was uh, sort of coming out and going into a different type of revolution uh, with sort of a wealthy, uh, essentially a plantation overseer father, Mm -hmm. Uh, who supported them, but sort of was largely absent from their life. He was much older and he died when he was, when Bob Marley was 10, was raised by his mother, uh, uh, who is black, a black Jamaican woman. And uh, it came from sort of being an outsider in that society. uh, And having to deal with a lot of pain in his childhood, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes going without food, but it comes from within. And so it is a, um, It's, 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 it's pure and it's something that you don't find very often in rock stars today.
2: I think it's interesting too, because, you know, you read those quotes and if you, if you, like you're talking about it's it's, it's context completely, you know, because if you hear that out of context, sort of my first reaction to that would be like, this is sort of like. Like you said, like the Instagram, like Tumblr aesthetic, like a la Car or something like that, where it's just, you know, can feel kind of cheesy or trite, like you were saying. But then it's exactly, no, you need to put this in the context of what his childhood was like, where he's coming from, when he was saying these quotes. Um, it just infuses with so much more meaning that I think, you know, were it posted or shared today in a different context, it perhaps wouldn't be as powerful as it is, Um but just knowing where it came from and knowing sort of who he is and what his story was. And I know we're going to dive deeper into that now. It just opens up a wealth of a story beneath it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you brought up a great point, which is there wasn't any technology. Mm -hmm. So these ideas weren't something that could be spread quickly. And just today, I'm not going to say who it is. I opened up my Instagram and um, there is a rock star who I follow, who literally posted like she ran out of room to post. So she had to like make like separate posts about how she's a Buddhist and chanting. My very first reaction was eye roll. If Mm -hmm. I had been somebody that commented on those things, I would have been like, Oh my God, because the, um, the sort of self aggrandizement sort of came through in a way that, I mean, it was just so obvious, you know? Um, Yeah. And sort of like very sort of self-obsessed attention seeking. And that's exactly sort of, Not where Bob Marley comes from, and I think that's why he's such a beloved figure. Um, this was also a man that was incredibly generous. Um, you know, there is, I'm going to play a quote, um, I think I have it where uh, the house that he lived in in Jamaica eventually, when he kind of quote unquote made it. Um, There would be lines of people whenever he was in town around the corner, you know, I have a kid that needs their school fees paid and I need money for this or I'm sick or I need. And uh, you have these musicians saying that were being interviewed that said, yep, and Bob would give them something and not just a little pittance. He would give them enough that they could get, you know, that was substantive that they could get started on. And he would often sort of charter his own planes, pay his own money uh, to go to a concert or do something that he felt was important. Um, you know, he was a Rastafarian, uh, mm-hmm. and that was a religion that he uh, ended up converting to, I think, in the 1960s. And, you know, Rasta is basically, you know, it, it's interesting because there's a lot of music that's been influenced um, by sort of reggae and ska and rocksteady uh, and dancehall and Rastafarian, including No Doubt, and sublime mm. uh, and, you know, a lot of kind of what we think of as more mainstream rock. In fact, I think when Stefani named uh, several of her kids have names that sort of uh, play homage back to Bob Marley and that entire scene, Nesta. Kingstone. I had no idea.
2: I didn't know yeah, that. One of her
0: children is named Nesta. Another one is Kingston. Uh, and they all have like middle or um, first names that actually Uh, you know, are basically paying respect to Bob Marley and that entire tradition. Um, And she's done, I think, music with Junior Gong, uh, which is the nickname for one of Bob Marley's children. I think Mm -hmm. it's Rohan, um, because he was called Tough Gong. And that was in homage to, I think, another sort of spiritual leader who was, his nickname was Gong. So Bob Marley was called Tough Gong. His son was called Junior Gong. Gwen Stefani's recorded with them. Um, But there is a lot of influence. Bad Brains, who is a hardcore band that I love, uh, eventually started to move towards this kind of Rastafarian. Um, If not like living the lifestyle or, you know, falling 100 percent into it, like took certain tenets of it. Um, And, you know, it's about living clean. I mean, they do smoke Mm -hmm. a lot of weed, but that is (laughs) realize God. And by the way, it's really interesting. There are um in hinduism you know in the philosophy of hinduism there are um in the himalayas sadhus you know there are people that renounce their lives and go live up in snow covered mountains without food meditating for decades without eating and growing mm. dreads and they smoke pot and you know they worship shiva and so i thought it was interesting um, I didn't get a chance to dig into whether there was kind of any exposure to any of that, but these are people that you know they have no money. They live on whatever is begged for the day or donated to them. They're living in extreme climates, meditating like 23 hours out of 20. Some of them, like their limbs, go atrophied because they don't use their legs. They don't Some do of them anything. Stand on one wow. leg, yeah. And so it reminded me very much of that, you know. So mm. I know. You know, it's really easy for a lot of people to take that and go, yeah, I'm like really into peace and love and I smoke pot. But I don't think that's where this, you know, certainly Bob Marley was coming from and this movement was coming from.
2: Yeah. I mean, because it comes from like direct obviously it's a different interpretation from it but it's coming from sort of the monotheistic bible in that way you know like it, the, it's so interesting the way that the root started and then it's you know coming from ethiopia and and got the whole like pan-africanism and, and african diaspora influences with it and like you're saying like the living naturally and and to them you know smoking weed was just part of living naturally in that way yeah. without, like opening up to the higher consciousness or something exactly. like that like there's so much like cultural exchange in that way and, and, and like you, I do kind of wonder more about, you know, I'd like to see if there was sort of more of a of a direct influence. But, you know, you're talking about the people in the Himalayas that, that sort of go up and, and live that way. Makes me think when Bob Marley got sick um, for a while, some of his treatment, right, wasn't it that he was just sort of avoiding certain foods and, and ingredients and indul- indulging in other ones, like very much this sort of like natural, intentional, like melding body with the environment and what you put in the body that sort of approach was something he very much lived it wasn't just a wasn't just an aesthetic or a phase or something like that like even when it came down to his life
0: yeah, exactly. So he was, he loved playing football. He was very active. You'll see a lot of film of him, like playing what we call soccer. So he would play a lot of soccer. He ran. In fact, when they discovered that he had cancer, he was actually running in Central mm. Park mm-hmm. um, and fell down and uh, was like basically foaming blood at his mouth. Oh, God. Um, yeah. And so they were like, oh, my God, what happened? This was right after they had a concert at Madison Square Garden, which was really Um, exposing them to black audiences in America, because they really first kind of became huge with white audiences. And that was actually something that was planned, which is an interesting story in and Mm -hmm. of itself. But he was becoming more and more concerned that he wasn't connecting with sort of the black diaspora. Uh, You know, he wrote songs when Rhodesia was um, going for independence, he wrote songs for Zimbabwe, you know, it was renamed Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. He wrote songs to send them Um, and he would show up in like, uh, they didn't know that Gabon was being uh, run by a dictator, but they were invited by I think the daughter of the dictator and they went uh, and then they realized, oh, he's not a good guy, but they ended up finishing their shows. So, and he would sometimes do this stuff out of his own pocket, right? Show up to these places, play for free. Um, When they were trying to break into sort of uh, kind of uh, black American music, um, they were offered a spot to tour with the Commodores as an opening act for the Commodores. Mm. Um, and I, th- I may have some um, clips of this. And uh, the manager was like, heck no. you know," Because at that point, Marley was much more of a global phenomenon than the Commodore. And they're like, heck no, you should be opening for Bob Marley. But he went to Bob Marley and said, hey, this is what the offer is, and we're not going to take it. Bob Marley's was like, no, let's do it. Um, and they ended up becoming, I think, such a hit that the tour actually was disbanded because I think that there were more people cheering for the opening act, but that sort of opened them up Mm -hmm. to kind of black America. Um, But yeah, he was just, you know, the, the Rastafarianism came, you know, it's kind of, it's called a religion. It's a philosophy and it really kind of comes out of Africa. Um, And it incorporates all these different tenets of, you know, natural religions and Christianity and stuff, but it's different Rastafarians believe different things. So it's kind of a bit difficult to pin them down, but sort of mm-hmm. the healthy living, the kind of uh, smoking natural weed as sort of a way to expand your consciousness and be more one, um, you know, with everyone, with the universe, with God um, and, you know, natural medicine. Um, you know, for a while he was um, with uh, Cindy Breakspear who was a Miss world uh, Jamaica. She was a Miss Jamaica Mm -hmm. who became a Miss world and uh, their Damon, I think Damon Marley is their child. Um, And she tells funny stories of like, Oh, I had to, I would have to take off all of my makeup before I had to go see him because he just didn't like that. You know, Um, he needed the natural. He wanted the natural, but here's, what's really interesting. When he started out with the whalers and they signed, they were at CBS Records and they went to go sign with Island Records, uh, Chris Blackwell's label, uh, which is really kind of the label they sort of made it under. And Chris mm-hmm. Blackwell is sort of known for being a uh, rock, you know, he was he uh, uh, was sort of a uh, rock denizen uh, in terms of the kinds of bands that he had on his labels. Um, he saw them as, hey, these there's this interesting sound reggae. They also, he had had a reggae artist leave his, Label, and so he had a space for that artist, but he also wanted to market them as rock music. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the Whalers walked in, he said, Oh, fantastic. Um, They actually came to see him about something else, but he gave them like 4,000 pounds to go do a demo. So they went to go do a demo, they came back, um, and when they wanted to go, you know, it was uh, Peter Tosh, who we grew up with, and Bunny Livingston, who we grew up with, uh, who was it was first the Whalers, and then it eventually became Bob Marley and the the Whalers, Yep. And they went on tour. um, And I think the record they made was catch a fire and they went on tour. And uh, I think it was, uh, I believe it was uh, Bunny Livingston that started to say, hey, wait a minute, we're playing in all of these non Rastafarian places, which is like sketchy places, right? Perhaps they were strip clubs or Mm -hmm. places where people were smoking and drinking, you know, which is stuff that these guys did not do. And he was like, I'm not into this. And he said, you know, he says in an interview, I thought that my brothers wouldn't be into this. But Bob Marley was very focused on success. He liked achievement. And he continued uh, touring. This was before they were famous. So there was that other side to him that was very practical mm-hmm. and sort of very achievement-oriented. But I think it's clear that he sort of did that because that was a means to an end. Because he knew that if he had that platform, then he could sort of talk about love and unity and peace and jaw and, you know, whatever it is that he wanted to talk about on that platform. Um,
2: that is an interesting duality, though. Like, I, I wonder even just from sort of like our perspective now looking back on him like like because i i would never sort of when i think of bob marley i think you know way more sort of like being in in touch with nature and and sort of like the peace and and equality and generosity i wonder what about his legacy and what about you know sort of the way he's portrayed now that we we just we pay more attention to that rather than this sort of pragmatism and this, you know, drive for success. Maybe it's because once he got that success, he stuck to sort of who he was,
0: you know, but I, yeah. I wonder yeah. I, it's well, an like, interesting
2: tension that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think for him, really, it was it was really a vehicle. Mm. Um, there are some things that you kind of need to do, and I think he was sort of willing to do that. And in, in fact, Cindy Breakspear says, you know, their interviewers are saying, you know, she was a Miss World, and he said, well, there was a little part of him he got the girl, you know. And mm. she says he, Bob liked achievement, um, and uh, you know, it's it's interesting when you go way back. A lot of it, people have made a lot of his childhood because he didn't know his father, and the father supported them, but passed away when he was ten. And I heard this really. You know, this interesting analysis that the reason that, um, you know, well, first of all, that Bob Marley looked so much like his father, that he had gone to his father's office one day to ask for something. And when he walked in sort of everybody turned around and looked at him because he looked so much like his father. And there was a little bit, even though he married Bob Marley's mother, I think that there was a period where there was some kind of question mark and denial of like paternity. It was a bit of a strange uh, story, but it's interesting that he, they, they say that he walked in a young Bob Marley walks into the office to ask his father something. And everybody kind of turned around in Jamaica and was like, Oh my God, this is like the splitting image of his mm, father, normal mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there have been sort of... Um, there's been various folks in that scene that have come out and said, you know, the reason why Peter Tosh and Bonnie Livingston, are themselves, like, amazing musicians in their own right, didn't make it as far as Bob at that time. is Bob had that kind of duality um, in terms of, like, racially, he might have been more palatable to people. He wasn't as dark as the other two. He wasn't as kind of, you know, African or Jamaican. He, there was a... a a palatableness that, you know, made him kind of saleable to audiences. And that has come from Jamaican musicians that are looking back on like why maybe Peter Tosh or when didn't make it sort of as big as uh, Bob Marley did, but um, sort of an interesting kind of aspect to look at, right? Because it is sort of complicated. I mean, you have to remember, this was a man that really only had a decade of fame, um right he, died, when he, was he died so
2: young wow can so you imagine
0: young. if he had continued what his life would have been like
2: i just like i i i'm trying to continue to imagine him in, you know future historical context that he just never got to see and i it is crazy. And 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 sort of, you know, the thought of watching him interact with other musicians, you know, like we, we did Michael Jackson last week, like, mm-hmm. what, what would that have collaboration? Because I feel like inevitably, there would have been have collaboration between the two of them. But then you just think about everything that they miss and the historical context that they don't get to experience. And it's, it's really sad, but also just kind of wild to think about like that.
0: Well, you know, he collaborated with Stevie Wonder. I don't know if you know that. I Um, didn't know that. Yep, he did a collaboration with Stevie Wonder. And here's what's really interesting. Since you're talking about a previous episode you did, you know that I am like really into punk. And of course, Mm -hmm. Bad Brains was very, one of the seminal uh, punk bands out of the DC hardcore scene, which I grew up in. And uh, I grew up like having tapes of Bad Brains, eye against eye, and going to see them at tiny venues. And it would literally, it would be a bunch of, black guys with dreadlocks playing to white skin heads. I mean, like they would be thrashing in the pit and all of us like little kids would be like up against like the walls, like not wanting to get hit, uh, going to see these amazing shows. But um, there's actually a connection with punk too, because uh, Bob ended up leaving Jamaica because, you know, there was an assassination attempt on his life. Right. Um, he was, there was a, I think if the concert was called Jamaica smile Um, And somebody thought it was a political uh, concert. And so they broke into his house uh, and shot him, his wife, and one other person. And so, uh, you know,
2: but no one died, right? Or no one died. Okay. Not that that, not that that, not that that's like, Oh, it's okay. An assassination attempt. Nobody died, but like (laughs) just making sure I'm, I'm up on my, my facts with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No one died, but he was, um, somebody said to him, aren't you scared to get up and go do the concert? And he said, you know what? The people that, that, that thought that this was political and tried to hurt us aren't taking a day off. I can't either. Hmm. So, Showed up. He did the concert, but then he spent a few years in exile in London. Um, and in fact, uh, Exodus came out then, which is such a great song. Um, and at that time, he heard the Clash for the first time and really saw that there were similarities. You know that the Clash were kind of railing. You know the the uh, famous, uh, legendary punk band, I should say. You know they were railing against the system and racism and oppression. And he really felt sort of a kinship between punk and reggae and he felt that there were lots of similarities mm. uh, you know between kind of what was going on at home in Jamaica English black people American blacks and punks so um, they put out a punky reggae party um, and so he was a guy that was experimenting and open you know to so many ideas and I really when I think of him I think of him as a very pure, very natural, really a seer. Um, I I don't use that word profit lightly. And of course it's also a play on the fact that, you know, Rastafarians, I'm sure that you um, know about this in your research, you know for me it's it's a little bit funny because i don't know if you know the movie trading places i always think about that movie um do you know what i'm talking about no and dan Aykroyd.
2: oh i've 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 not seen it but i i know which one you're talking with jamie lee curtis isn't it with jamie lee curtis, yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: where uh dan Aykroyd and eddie murphy dress up as like Rastafarians meeting on a train and they start talking about haile selassie i mean it's actually really funny um, but, um, you know, Haile Selassie was the Ethiopian emperor is considered mm. a, either a, uh, a incarnation of Christ or a second coming of Christ or prophet. Some Rastafarians don't, but he is considered, um, uh, you know, somewhat holy to all the way this guy is actually an incarnation of Christ. And it's funny because Haile Selassie has said is a bit of a controversial figure himself and has said both things. He said, I have no idea what these people are talking about. I'm just a man. I'm going to end up dying. But then he's also said, who am I to, you know, who am I to basically um, question their beliefs that they believe that I am, you know, God. Mm. So, um, you know, and it's sort of interesting. uh, These people started looking to Ethiopia and they were just convinced um, that he was, you know, eternal life, uh, you know, incarnation of Jesus. So when he passed away, when the emperor passed away, some Rastafarians became very disillusioned. Others left, you know, the religion completely altogether. Others just thought, no, he's in hiding. Mm-hmm. Others thought, oh, well, it was just a physical death and he lives on. And some people didn't actually accept that he was an incarnation. So there are so many different factions. Um, but I think seeing Haile Selassie in Jamaica also was a turning point for Bob Marley. Yeah. It kind of cemented his kind of. His his conviction in and devotion to sort of the Rasta Rasta religion. Well,
2: my question is, how did they pick Haile Selassie? Like, because I, I know it said like like even there was there were some like Protestant clergymen too that were like him becoming emperor is like you know a, a biblical prophecy coming true. But it's like even if this if this emperor is like it's not me, not know what you're talking. About, like, do you do you know like where
0: <laughs> it's really? I actually. Did a lot of research a long time ago on all of this, and was like really I was I was fascinated. I actually ran into people that were Ethiopian, so I was like, what is the deal? Um, but they believe that there is a reference, there's an interpretation in I think it's the Book of Revelation that they think that he is kind of the second coming of Jesus. Oh. I don't know how they, I'm sure if you dig into it, you could find out. They think of him as a living God, and that he is part of the Trinity. Um, and that he's coming back. And there's actually a really beautiful song that I'm going to play in the outro. Um, it's one of my favorites, uh, iron lion, Zion, which is about, um, uh, you know, he's called the, I think he's called the lion of Zion. Um, and, um, he's basically God incarnation in a human form, but they, again, I think if I'm sure if you dig in somewhere, there will be some connection, but it is really interesting because they were already looking towards Africa, um, and I'm not exactly sure why they believe that it was the Ethiopian monarch that was the second coming of Jesus versus, you know, some dictator or some other King or something, you know, mm-hmm. they just, but I just, I do know that they sort of legitimized this by, uh, quoting from scripture from like the book of Re- Revelation or something and saying, you know, got it.
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I find I find the whole religion, philosophy, social movement so fascinating. Like, especially with how decentralized it is, and even like within the tenets of the religion, it speaks to the decentralization, right? Because is isn't also part of it that they believe, and this is I guess this isn't completely different from sort of the Judeo Christian um, beliefs as well, but this idea that like god there's a bit of god in sort of every single person and like god is spread (laughs) out amongst all the people and so the way that that just then that is sort of the religious philosophical tenet and that is contributing to then you know how they're actually organized and and practicing in the world and and how they're spreading and everything I, i just i don't know i just i find that parallel and maybe this is just me being a history nerd in that way. I always find it really interesting when it's sort of the philosophical tenets and, and the actual physical evidence and application sort of mirror each other in that way.
0: Yeah. They're, they're, they're considered, a you know, this is I think a great description an Afro centralized blend of Christianity and Judaism is what is, you know, comes up on Wikipedia, but mm-hmm. it is, and it's really kind of with putting sort of, um, the kind of um the you know the black persona in the center of this narrative which is clearly very different from sort of the judeo-christian tradition um and there is sort of a credence given to you know um early black african history and as africans being god's people but then they also do things that are a little you know the whole natural living they're all vegetarians I don't. know, But when I was, um, you know, in college in New York, you know, you there would be Rastafarians um, all on Eighth Street selling like amazing smell. They all smelled so great, you know, like potions hmm. and like. Um, I haven't seen that. Oh wow! They were always they were everywhere, like incense, and you'd always talk to them because they're the most interesting people, like oils and like all natural, um, you know all natural types of like things that you could put on your body and um fern in your in your room so they're really about that whole kind of like getting back to nature they they say things like oh being under the waterfall is like the greatest massage that you can have but um you know it is in some ways i think also a social and political movement Mm -hmm. um and so and you know that ties it back to bob marley who Again, he wasn't, you know, in the way that Bob Dylan was very political and social, it's kind of, there's a purity that you sense that is missing from, you know, uh, Rockstar X that was posting today about, you know, right. you don't know that I'm a Buddhist and I'm like, oh my God, you say it every five minutes. How you <laughs> you not know that you're not a Buddhist, you know? And she was like, and that I chanted and blah, 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 and, you know, and it was like seven pages of, you know, how I'm a Buddhist and... Um, you guys probably don't know. And I chant, you know, Om Remge. I forget the cha- the one that Tina Turner does. And it's like, oh my God.
2: Um, I'm so it, curious and, about who the celebrity is. I'm going to do some sleuthing after this episode. <laughs> or maybe I'll just ask I'll you say, offline. Yeah. Yeah. offline.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really easy to figure out. But um, yeah, but there's a lot of that, right? Where um, people like to come out and sort of advertise who and, and what they're doing. And, and, you know, and I've said this in, in other in some of our other episodes, right? We're all at the end of the day animals and we are all very instinctual. And we have good sort of, you know, radars that tell us if somebody is being sincere, not, not a word needs to be said, right? You convince mm-hmm. people through your presence, not through words. And, um, and I think that when you look at somebody like Bob Marley or Dylan, you know, the truth is there,
2: mm-hmm. you know?
0: um and and you feel it and and sometimes it's like you just you you just see the purity of the man and you know here's a guy that had the money to go live in a five star hotel if he needed to and cut himself off from the rest of the world and yet he was coming back to Jamaica um and the the i think that the the it was 56 Hope Road i think that's it i'm just saying this from memory so if i'm wrong don't shoot me um <laughs> but i think that was the His headquarters and you know you'll see in like a lot of these clips people saying there were lines around the corner because he was such a national hero Um, he became such a national hero in Jamaica that people would just be coming the same way that I've seen in other countries like people lining up at politicians homes to ask for favors you Mm. know we do that in this country too it's just that people wear suits and it's not as obvious and it's big money and you don't it's under the table you know it's like special interest money but you know there in you know in what they would call the third world countries at that time people would be standing around with their kids you know I need the school fees to be paid we're hungry uh, we need books and he was always incredibly generous Um, which brings me to you know when we're talking about sort of concerts and things um, Jamaica also kind of he was such an activist. And there was such a social message and a political message in his music. Um, and it was about unity and love and peace. And he put his money where his mouth was, right? Get back on stage after he'd been shot and finished that concert. But when he was in England, uh, there was unrest in Jamaica, and he was begged to come back uh, and to do a concert. So here's a guy that's an artist, uh, that's kind of sort of quote unquote made it in the quote unquote white world in terms of the music, you know, it's picking up steam. People love it. Most of the audiences are white, but he's being asked to come back to Jamaica to intervene in a, what's becoming a kind of a, it's sort of devolving into kind of a political warfare between two candidates uh, that were vying to be prime minister of uh, Jamaica. And one was a socialist uh, which was, of course, hated by the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I'm sure we were actively trying to do things to get rid of him. Uh, of course. Um, Part for the
2: chorus for us. <laughs>
0: yeah, just just business as usual. Nothing <laughs> to see here. Keep it moving. <laughs> um, and then the other side, you know, was uh, uh, another uh, politician. These are sort of, um, uh, you know, what I think is really interesting is they're all Jamaican and they're all mixed. You know, there's a little black, a little white, a little Chinese, a little Indian. So they're all mixed. Even if they look white, they actually have like all sorts of mixtures. And I think that's fascinating about mm. Jamaica. Um, And so he was called back to kind of give a concert, uh, which was called the Third World's Woodstock. It was called One Love Peace Concert. And so Bob Marley and the Whalers were going to perform. And uh, they took the stage at like 1230. And. And uh, they also have, I think it was Peter Tosh that performed before them, who spent basically two hours, uh, you know, chastising the two leaders mm-hmm. um, and basically denouncing all of the problems that were prevalent. And, you know, remember Peter Tosh and and um, Bob Marley came up together in the original Wailers. They actually had a bunch of different bands. They had the Teenagers. And then it became uh, the... Um, Forget what the name they're called the Rude Boy whalers They're the Rude Boys and they become the whalers So Peter Flash that Bob Surly Marley took the stage at twelve thirty. And um at the I think they were playing a uh, Jammin, and I think there is tape or video of it. Um he actually called both of the leaders up. Yes. Have you seen it? And I it's have- really funny. <laughs>
2: I, yeah, and they like hold up their hands in the very
0: awkward. He right? them up for <laughs> so
2: awkward. it's like we're all going to get along now and it's like oh, that is not how this is going to end up, but sort of is on on par and on brand for Marley to try and facilitate that, I guess. But it it seems like it would be a bit of an awkward moment, like as an audience member, personally.
0: Oh, it was, it was, if you actually look at the film, it's in that fantastic movie, Kevin McDonald's movie. Mm. They're looking at each other really awkwardly. (laughs) So they're like, uh... but he's like, you can tell he's in another place, right? He is just dancing and he's holding the hand and he's saying, one love, we're coming together unfortunately um, it didn't actually uh, quell the violence that was happening. Uh, But it was kind of like an iconic moment where he just kind of brought them up and it wasn't planned. It was spontaneous. He chanted over them, you know, and people were like waiting, you know, this was like a big deal in Jamaica. So he really sort of, he went beyond sort of being kind of this musician. Here he was kind of being a visionary and uh, saying these things that sound very prophetic, pro- prophetic mm-hmm. and also giving advice. Like that quote that I wrote you, I hate people that put quotes up on their Instagram and stuff. <laughs> I really do. Because I'm usually like, uh, you should be reading your own quote. You were mm-hmm. the first person that should be like taking that in. But I have put up that, that quote about women where it's like... Um, going to read it again because it's so good deserves um, to
2: be said again
0: <laughs> if she's amazing she won't be easy if she's worth it you won't give up if you give up you're not worthy the truth is everyone is going to hurt you you just got to find the ones worth suffering for i have that up on my instagram because it's so true i shared it with my mother thinking that she was going to poo poo it she was like yep he's <laughs> right he is right um and he also so he's like this prophet he's this wise person you know William Shakespeare did it with the pen and Bob Marley Mm. did it with his music and his words and then he's becoming sort of this political figure that's showing up in places wherever there's strife you know he's the activist uh yeah I'm I'm
2: trying to think of other because like obviously or not obviously but there there's so much overlap between like art culture and politics but the the way the sort of like centralization of him as a political figure and 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 sort of especially by the people of jamaica him being upheld as sort of like you know this person that could enact real change and and someone that they trusted and go for i wonder like i'm trying to think if there are other artists like that like i like there are artists like i'm thinking like who play for presidents and who will like fundraise and and be involved that way in politics. But I'm trying to, I I don't know if I can think of another artist that's sort of that politically significant. I think,
0: you know, I'm not a fan of his, but my mother likes him, which says something to me. I think Bob Dylan was a little like Mm -hmm. that. I don't know if anybody in the audience knows, but Bob Dylan was, you know, he was a poet. He was political. Uh, But again, I was just never into Dylan's music um, that much. So I couldn't tell you. But I think the difference between, The artists that we see now that show up to like, you know, um, stump for a candidate they love or they show up to play the inauguration, they dip in and out. Mm -hmm. They don't live it. And Bob Marley was living it. So he was in and of the, you know, the fight, the protests. I mean, he was living it. He was with the people. He was for the people. He was of the people. But he was a true, you know, he was kind of like, I'm here with you. Uh, and he was showing up in these places and, uh, you know, fighting the fight with them. Um, there was a situation, I forget what the concert was where they threw tear gas at somewhere that he was playing and everybody ran off stage, including his back, including Rita Marley, who he was, his wife, who Mm -hmm. was one of his backup singers and people in the audience. And he was so in a trance in another world. He had no freaking clue what happened. And then he came out of it. And later he said to them, now I knew who the revolutionaries are because they all ran away when the tear gas came out. And he was just one of these guys that I think, you know, he wasn't dipping his toe into the water when it was convenient or writing a million dollar check mm-hmm. or saying, you should vote, you know, or you should do this. And then, you know, go running off to Hyannis on vacation. Um, he was living, he was living in quote unquote, the ghettos of Jamaica. He was giving back to the community He was living the lifestyle, you know, of a revolutionary in many ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of one of the dichotomies is you think about also the personal life. So I don't know if you looked into that at all. Well, Um, I
2: saw lots of lots of children with lots of women, which not I, I am not coming from a place of judgment, but definitely an interesting personal life dichotomy with this sort of someone who's very it, it at first at first glance when I was reading this it kind of was surprising to me yeah, <laughs> but like to be honest I was like, hmm, that doesn't I don't know that doesn't yeah. that doesn't strike me as what i I think it would be, but then you know sort of reading more it's all about you know going back to like natural like following nature and natural like I can see how that interpretation sort of and I don't think this is the right era but sort of was going into like the free love and sort of all of that sort of like openness um but definitely, definitely, an uh, uh, interesting situation there.
0: Well, um, I, you can't judge, but I will. Um, <laughs> I will say that I'm. You know, I was just like, what? But he he had um, eleven children from seven different women. Mm-hmm. He was married to Rita Marley, and uh, she became his protector. And so half of them were like, I didn't even know he was married, and then I realized that Rita was married to him and Rita was his backup singer. And she was the one that would go into the dressing room because women loved him and they were drawn to him. And uh, somebody was saying it's because he was shy. He never pursued them. And so he would say, oh, Rita, you know, these people are bothering me. And she would go into the dressing room, and get rid of people. And I do, you know, there have been uh, documentaries that have said, you know, Rita never would talk about it, but clearly she was hurt by what was going on. But I mean, yeah, so was so devoted to him and to the movement, and to what he stood for. Um, And so he kind of, you know, I think he just, uh, he had a bit of a, you know, kind of a disconnect there. And Mm -hmm. his children have said that they, he was a rough dad. They said he was kind of like the kind of dad that would say, all right, kids, let's race. And then he wouldn't let them win. He would run faster than it was like he was like but they, and they, you know some of his kids are like dad. It's like I'm know?
2: I'm a child. I'm a child. Like <laughs> everyone knows, that the child win at first.
0: He'd be like, you lost, you know, and and um, his kids had a tough time because they were shunned. Uh, they were shunned because he was such a lightning rod. Uh, People thought of him, you know, as somebody that did drugs, that was politically, you know, uh, an agitator, that was an activist. It was unsafe to be around that family. So they talk about it it was tough making friends. And he would say, you don't need friends. You just, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't need friends. So I think there was stuff that was self-serving, but I think often sometimes you see these kind of cults of personalities around these figures that kind of rise up to a place where they're kind of beyond, you know, sort of anything that somebody can understand. Right. And, and, um, you know, I, I mean, I sort of look at the personal side of his life and just go, Oh, well, you know, it's not something that um, I would want, uh, you know, and and something Mm -hmm. that I (laughs) I don't condone it, but uh, you know, he, and clearly all of these women were kind of, still supportive of him and around and uh, part of that is because, you know, I think they were not only in love with him, but I think he was that kind of figure. Um, he was somebody that uh, really kind of transcended all of those things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting that we didn't really kind of dig into is the fact that, you know, when she, when they signed with Island Records, um, Chris Blackwell, who was the founder uh, you know, had given them uh four thousand pounds to go out and make a record. They did, but he had said these guys were a rock act, and he marketed them like a rock act. Yeah. And so they had a huge white following. And so you would go to their concerts and you would see a lot of white people, and that started to bug Bob Marley after a while. And uh was really looking for black audiences. And I wanted to just sort of play uh, a little bit um you know, there uh, was folks in his entourage that kind of shared what the issues were and, you know, that Bob Marley did indeed want to reconnect. And, of course, because he was always doing things for the Black diaspora. And as I had mentioned, you know, he wrote songs for when Rhodesia was agitating for independence uh, and to become Zimbabwe, and, which is really interesting. That handover, Prince Charles was there overseeing it. This is all happening kind of like within our, quote unquote, our lifetimes. Right? Yeah. So like. A fifty-year or however long span,
2: and that feels surprising to me. Yeah, like, that, see, like yeah. it's how how recent it is is yeah. like takes me by takes me off guard with it.
0: Yeah, there these are current events that are happening. So, um, but he was very very concerned about that, and uh, uh, they did end up playing Madison Square Garden. Uh, it was, I think. They played two shows before he was diagnosed with cancer. But this was kind of the, uh, what one of his managers was saying. And I just want to share the quote with you. Did Bob want to reach a black audience in America? Oh, of course he did. Bob,
1: until he died, he did. The last concert in New York was to try to get African-American R&B airplay in America. Bob had a cult following in America. And when you go to a Bob Molly concert, it was sold out, but it was white. The, the black people were responding. It was always a big thing. We always talked about it. We always wondered why. So Frankie Crocker, the number one jock in the country, said that I got a concert with Commodore. We'll guarantee you three months. Of airplane, if Bob would open for the Commodore. We say, you gotta be crazy. The Commodore should be open and show for Bob Marley, not in reverse. I went back to Bob, and Bob said, no problem. (laughs) you <laughs>
0: So that was like his entourage being, it actually brings tears to my eyes is so, his music is so beautiful and the message is so positive. And I think that's actually part of the reason it w- it was so popular about love and peace. And, you know, it sounds hokey, but you can hear it. And it's anytime you hear this music, you want to dance and it fills your heart and soul and it's just so, so, so deeply touching. Um, but Those two concerts, you know, he did one in Madison square garden. And then after that concert is when they went running in central park and he tripped, uh, and was foaming at the mouth. And that's where, and then he jumped up and said something like, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, praise be God or something Mm -hmm. and you know, jaw rolls. And, and then, uh, they actually went to a doctor. Um, and, uh, you know, I I think it was Sloan, um, I believe it was Sloan Kettering, um, or somewhere, somewhere in, it was somewhere in New York. Um, and, um, they said, listen, you've got a cancer that has spread all over your body, lungs, brain. Um, and, uh, uh this may not be treated and apparently Bob Marley was very upset. And and you know, some people have said that it started from a soccer injury. Other people have said this was a very rare type of melanoma. Um and it's interesting because their melanomas generally happen uh with lighter skin and so there have been some of his Jamaican folks who said, Well that was the white side of his family that came from that disease oh that killed him. Yeah. But it was on the underside of his toe apparently but they say mm-hmm. that You know, he was playing football and uh, the, uh, you know, there are many different stories. People say it's not from playing football. It is a cancer that was hereditary that he had on the underside of his toe. They didn't think to check for it because it is predominantly kind of uh, seen in uh, Caucasians and it was on the underside. And so when they did find it um, as kind of he stubbed his toe, they were told that they would have to amputate his toe. And he said, no, because he was such an active person. Mm -hmm. Um, It was going to like interfere
2: with his performing. It was going
0: to interfere with his performance. He wanted to be all natural. Mm -hmm. And then he went to a doctor in Miami that said, oh, we can just take off your toenail and you'll be fine. So there are many sources like Chris Blackwell that says, and then he never got checked out after that. If he had gotten checked out, I am sure they would have been able to do something. But the problem was flash forward a few years he falls down in central park and then they tell him that he's got this basically inoperable cancer. Right. And he ends up getting very, very upset. Uh, He had, uh, you know, I was watching an interview with backup singers saying that um, he ended up, um, uh, you know, the next rehearsal was really bad. This was all in America. The next rehearsal was really bad. And they they did one song for two hours and they would never seen him like that. So he was clearly Mm -hmm. bothered. Uh, And then they went to Pittsburgh the next day Uh, I think that's where these multiple rehearsals, to do the last concert. And they were told that at the end of that, they said it was the last concert. But he came out and did two encores. Mm. Uh, The rest of the entourage was quite shocked that he was able to go that far. Um, But then he ended up having to be admitted into a hospital. Uh, His dreadlocks fell out. And that was really kind of so much of who he was, you know? Yeah, I'm
2: sure it's just symbolically, like for him personally and and for, you know, sort of the world and people that love him. I'm sure that was just like visually and and viscerally devastating.
0: The children say that he looked so small. He was a larger than life figure. And that just broke my heart when I I saw that interview. Mm -hmm. He looked so small without his dreads. And, you know, it's also interesting that they talk about energy being in hair. Um, I don't know if yeah. might, like, Lenny Kravitz cut off all of his dreads because he was just like the energy. It needed to go. And again, I there's really interesting traditions, you know, where your head is shaved in other traditions because you get rid of the energy that's in your hair. Mm-hmm. So in a way that might have been very symbolic and jarring for him, right? And uh, of course all of the women in his life, Rita and Cindy, showed up and they lit candles and they read and they were keeping vigil, um, and, and saying Bible verses. Um, and then in October, the hospital discharged him and said they couldn't do anything. Uh, you have like three weeks to live. And, uh, you know, which is very, very tragic. So at mm-hmm. that point he decided to go to a holistic doctor in Bavaria, Germany. Now, first of all, I have to say, if the cancer didn't kill you, um, I know something about Bavaria, Germany, Bavaria will. Um, so I don't even know why they went over there, but um, He ended up going to uh, Bavaria against the wishes of the women. And you need to think about this, right? This is like in, he was there from November, 1980 to April, 1982. And he lived there in the ice and snow. And I understand this because I have a mother that's from tropical South India that came to Hawaii in the 1960s, but then came to San Francisco and then ended up, you know, on the East coast. And came with sandals, you know, she came from one tropical and came with sandals and couldn't take the cold initially, you know, the snow and the cold initially thought it was beautiful. um, But I was thinking how tragic the man that was born and raised wearing a shirt, you know, without a shirt um, and playing with a ball and being in waterfalls and eating fruit off trees is now all of a sudden in this icy cold place without his hair probably eating food that's foreign to him. Like how deeply tragic in the last weeks of his life, hoping for a cure. He was a tropical person. So, so sad. Yeah. There are pictures of him wearing sunglasses because of the snow and ice. And he befriended a nurse there, a German nurse who called him Barbie. The doctor they were going to see is the only one in the world that apparently cured a melanoma um and at some point he became totally bald and the german nurse when she's asked what were your memories you know of him she said he was so patient he was so patient very friendly uh and she said we did all of these terrible things damn you know to cure him and he was just so patient and Just my heart went out thinking to be in a cold place without your food. It's really hard for tropical people. I've also worked in other parts of the world, and it's really, really hard for people to make that adjustment to come to a place like America or Northern Mm -hmm. Europe um, and eat the food. And, you know, we are physi I don't care what doctors tell you here, we're all physiologically and genetically different. You are a product of the thousands of years of whatever your bloodline is, right? And so So your body adapted to certain Mm. things. It didn't adapt to certain things. And so you you think about the fact that here is this man that was born and raised in the tropics that is now in freezing cold place without his food, without his hair, you know, wearing sunglasses, doing his best. But they celebrated his 36th birthday. There is film of that. Um, And this nurse that adored him said, you know, he seemed to be okay and getting better at first, but then he got worse. Mm um and then at that time uh I think the decision was made that he would come back maybe to Jamaica and so they actually flew to Miami first uh and I think there he kind of uh uh it got worse and so all the children were called and uh what was interesting is during this time somebody was saying that people started to chase him because they knew the end was near and again he was uh uh, you know, watching people because he'd never made a will purposely and um watching wow. all these people that were kind of showing up because yeah. of the money. His last words were money is not life. Yep. Uh, and I think he said that to his son. I think he
2: said it to, to Ziggy.
0: Yeah. And uh which is, again, also a very profound thing, right? We forget that. We're all chasing yeah. the dollar. And we're yeah. like, well, I'll be happy if I can have that, those shoes, or that apartment or that yep. job. And I think money is a symbol for everything, whatever it is that we're chasing. It could be relationships too, right? Whatever relationship. So again, very, very profound words, but the kids came, it was Miami in Miami, like May 8th, 1981. Um, and uh, everyone there was, I was watching this movie, but they said everyone revealed who they really were. There's a mm-hmm. fantastic twilight zone uh, around this, I, the masks. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's mm-hmm. creepy as heck. It's about, this awful family that come to see their dying uncle and he goes, okay, you'll, you'll get everything of mine. And they all pretend like, no, we're there because we love you, uncle. You know, the awful daughter her terrible, right. the terrible son-in-law, the two terrible children, you know, the girl's vain. the boy is like a sloth. The husband is like a no good for nothing nincompoop poop. And the, the wife just is like the daughter is just interested in the money. Uh, and the, the inventor says, okay, you'll get my money, but you're all going to wear a mask. And you have to wear that mask till midnight. Um, and then after midnight, you can remove them. So what happens is when they remove the masks, their face change to what they were inside. So they oh. grotesque, you know. And then they get all the money, but they have these faces that they can never change because the right. inside has come outside. So there was a statement that was made that Bob was watching everyone. He was saying people re- are re- revealing themselves. So we ended up dying on May 11th, 1981. Huge service in Jamaica. The body was taken back there. Uh, And there were police that were carrying his coffin. And some of his uh, entourage were like, he would have died that the police came. And of course, the prime minister came. And there were crowds, huge crowds everywhere, dancing and singing. His kids came and they were dancing. And some people said it was a bit of a circus. His children should not have been dancing on stage at a funeral. There shouldn't have been the kind of music they were playing. But anyway... It was just a huge, uh, you know, uh, tributes paid to Haile Selassie and, you know, just a huge sort of Mm -hmm. to-do. And so it was sort of, you know, a very kind of tragic, sad end for a man, you know, like so many of these great musicians, whether it was Janis Joplin or Jimi Hendrix or Kurt Cobain that died so young. So young. So young.
2: Yeah.
0: um, Even, you know, recently, Taylor Hawkins, I mean, people that had so much to contribute to the world that that passed away. Um, So just that, you know, even Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, that kind of solidifies them forever as an icon. Yeah. Um, That legacy.
2: There's something, there's something about
0: like the youth
2: preserved and the legacy combined with just like the sadness and, and tragedy of what could have been and what more they had to do. That's just like haunting in a way that, you know, they're relevant because of their talent and their and their contributions and, and everything. But I think sort of that haunting is also what keeps, you know, artists like that just so top of mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's poignant. It's very haunting. It's poignant. It is certainly... You know, when when you're cut, chopped down in the midst of youth, you're frozen in time forever, mm-hmm. right? You never get to see somebody be old, and it, you never change their perception, uh, your perception of them. And so, in that way, he's kind of enshrined, sort of in our memories forever. But he is, you know, I want to stress about him. I think that he is, in a way, uh, you know, the depth to the man there is a depth, even though you can look at him and go, oh, he was just smoking pot and like, you know, agitating people and he like was with all these women. And yet there's something that is really very spiritual, very Mm -hmm. profound about this man. And you just need to listen to, you know, him speak and watch kind of the actions and his generosity and how he was with the world. And he was really somebody that belonged to the world when I think of it, rather than, I think there's some personalities, you know, whether that's Gandhi or whoever that are born and they don't belong to a family or to a woman or to the, they belong to the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's certainly one of those personalities that I think of. So um, I think that there's a reason, I think all of these things are reasons why, you know, when you're walking by, I always think of like walking down the street and hearing a block party and you hear Mm -hmm. this reggae music and you immediately are like, what's that party? I want to go and see what the, you know, you're just in the mood to just like hang out and put you in a good mood. Your stress comes down. If you were agitated, it like floats away and that's, you're ready to like connect with people.
2: Yeah, Yeah! totally. Totally. Totally,
0: totally.
2: It's like, it's like you're going to be my new best friend now and not in, not in like the, like, drunk girls in a bathroom way just in a genuine like community i would never way. um
0: <laughs> no i would not, not
2: speaking from personal experience at not all. speaking from
0: personal experience at all yeah no and so just you know he is a prophet and a visionary olivia uh have a last word i, I just wanted to say that i wanted to end with uh a quick quote and then two songs. Uh, One is just one of the songs that made him uh, kind of a a legend in the world. And the second is one of my favorites. Uh, But um, did you have anything that you wanted to end on or anything that you learned or wanted to share? Well, I,
2: I, I would just want to say, you know, people who are listening, if you, you know, are a big Bob Marley fan or like me, you know, knew of him, but didn't sort of know the extent of the significance definitely go check out um, the documentary that Sarayu's been referencing Um, it's called Marley directed by Kevin McDonald Um, it's I only got to watch sort of the the first portion of it but I will definitely be going back and finishing it and I think it is just really sort of like a moving tribute and and reveal of his life and so you know if you liked this episode want to you know keep diving into Bob Marley I would definitely definitely go check that out it's on YouTube
0: Yes. And please follow the show. Uh, We hope to bring you many more great episodes of music icons and things that keep you interested. So thanks for listening, everybody. And so we're going to go out with, this was uh, a quote that, uh, Bob said, actually, when he was dying, he put out a message for his fans. So we're going to go out with this particular quote. And then, as I mentioned, I'm going to play a song that I'm pretty sure everybody recognizes because it's just so beautiful and universal. Um, And then one of my favorites, which is a tribute to Haile Selassie, um, the Lion of Zion. But uh, this is Bob right before his death. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will see you soon.
1: I understand that writers and people in the press are very concerned about my health. I want to say thank you for your interest and that I'll be all right and I'll be back on the road again in 1961. Recording, performing with the fans below. Beautiful. You know, if I'm talking to you, don't have no doubt. See? Good.